From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 214 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm very tired, but I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, I saw from your social media posts that you and Kylie just returned from a galaxy far, far away. I'm assuming that Kylie wore her Princess Leia slave costume and you whipped out your lightsabers. You boarded the Halcyon. Oh, no, no, no. You uh, <laughs> actually are not allowed. You're allowed to carry a lightsaber, but uh, you you definitely aren't allowed to uh, you're, you're not allowed to use it in any way that would be dangerous to everyone around you. Oh, but. you can't brandish it. What about in lightsaber training, though? That is the one place you are allowed to, but okay. you're not allowed to use your own lightsabers. So you're uh-huh. always free to carry around your hilt as long as you don't actually engage the lightsaber. Just, you know, you wouldn't want an accident. You wouldn't want to accidentally cut someone's arm off. Uh, as you're you're walking around, that that would ruin the cruise. Depends on the person, but <laughs> but uh, and if the first order, of course, attacked. Yeah, well, that's a big part ready. too. Yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't want to get messed up with them, or you would if that's your side. Yeah. Well, well, I was impressed that you know when I when I contacted you about the show, um, my little cell phone. It was like a Star Trek communicator. It reached right up to that ship. I was impressed. <laughs> it absolutely did. So it, it's, it's weird how, you know, on on our voyage, they said, nope, you, you won't be able to connect to the outside world. So you're going to have to keep quiet about it for a little bit. But uh, then some of the messages get just got through. I don't maybe it, maybe the resistance opened up a calm line and and you were able to get through in that way. But uh, must, must it's interesting. Have. <laughs> Must have. Well, I know we talked about your experience before the show, and it just sounds like you had a really good time. Yeah, I think it is. It's a very interesting, immersive concept that you definitely have to. You have to see it in person, and you have to experience it to fully understand it. And you know, it, as of the release of this week's podcast, you will. You'll already uh, see our our content out there. We're going to have YouTube videos of it. We have a vlog that showcases the whole experience. It's not actually a review. And uh, the reason for that is that the Diz policy is that we don't review anything we didn't pay for. And this was an invited event by Disney. And so, therefore, we show off the entire experience. If you want the entire thing spoiled for you or most of it, because, you know, you can't do everything on it. It's it's just not possible to physically do everything. So it can it only would spoil the experience that we had on there and not necessarily the experience that everyone had on there. Um but that's that's available to you. I 
that part of me thinks that it would actually be helpful for people who were going on the star cruiser. So they better know what to expect and the, the amount of time that they'll have to uh, invest in getting to be a part of that story. So uh, I, I think it could be helpful. You know, we'll also have a, a video and some written content about what you need to know for your star Wars galactic star cruiser experience. And we probably have a lot more to come. And then uh, next week, Rhino and Fiasco will be attending the maiden voyage for paid guests. And since that one is a paid opportunity, uh, not, not the invited event or anything, they are going to be able to fully, fully review it. So if you want to know deep down, like was how cool was this moment was, was that living up to the hype? Uh, You'll have to wait for their actual review of it. The only thing I'm allowed to say, uh, thankfully uh, Pete gave us permission to, to answer one question that we're getting a lot already. And that's whether or not it's worth the price point. And the answer is with what we experienced, there's no way to justify the current price point of it. But that being said, if the price point was a lot lower, in my case, if it was around like $2,000, I would be happy to go back on the Galactic Star Cruiser and experience it all again. So okay. uh, that's that's a little idea of, you know, what happened and uh, what what you can find out about it and my feelings on it. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing you and Denny share your experiences. And I know um, Corey Fiasco and Rhino are really looking forward to this. They have their costumes set and they are they are ready to fully immerse themselves yeah. in that experience. And that's so. an important part. And anyone who doesn't think they want to fully immerse themselves in the experience it's definitely they're not going to get the full product out of it. But as someone who was on the fence about whether or not I wanted to, to just cover it for work or if I wanted to like fully get into it um, and ultimately decided on getting into it and dressing the part and stuff, it is, it is clearly, it's clearly the thing to do. Um, You know, it's it, if you're an introvert, it's going to be hard to kind of break out of your shell, but it's, it is the way that you can truly live the story. And if you're not a star Wars person or you don't want to play along, it's just going to put, it's going to put you at a disadvantage. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at least some of the people in Imagineering and such that we've talked to about it, they fully admit that, you know, they, they tried to come up with offerings for people that maybe this wasn't the, maybe they were just there to support the people in their lives who enjoy star Wars. But overall, this is about story and you actually becoming a part of a star Wars story. And so if you don't want to do that, you might want to think about other opportunities or, uh, you know, align yourself with your spouse so you know you can at least take pictures of them throughout the entire process <laughs> and capture well, them having the time of their life. 
Yeah, that's good to know. Well, all my hopes and dreams that maybe this would be successful in Paramount Studios would create a similar Star Trek experience were dashed when, you know, J.J. Abrams announced there was going to be another Star Trek film with the Chris Pine cast. And then it was announced today that, well, you know, uh, apparently none of the cast, that was all news to them that they were going to be in the film and that it was going to start filming at the end of the year. So um, they uh, apparently, J.J. Abrams and Paramount had not engaged with any of the actors. So I think the... I think my hopes of there being any Star Trek films or a Star Trek, you know, visit a space station or something someday, I think that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it It definitely, you know, I know that there was the Star Trek hotel that the experience in Vegas back in the Which day. Which is fantastic. That, yeah, I, I, I went to it several times. Yeah, I, I yeah. feel like... I feel like these are good concepts and I, I would be interested in seeing where else, you know, not, not necessarily even with star Wars or star Trek. I'd be interested in seeing how Disney could maybe take this model and adapt it to a different property. Because uh, one thing that Denny did say multiple times with it is that she felt like it was, the next evolution for for her is a Disney fan of of uh, the Adventurers Club, like you know, mm-hmm. going going to that and knowing how you had to to move about the room and you know talk to talk to the characters that were there. It it felt like the next step, and I, I know I'm also talking about this as if it's it's still a, a new concept. I I fully understand that there are companies that specialize in these kind of experiences and you know in building these worlds and kind of this live theater moments that you get to be a part of as well too it's nothing new this is stuff that's been done before but for a lot of people like like me included this is the first time i've had an experience to it because now disney is dipping their toes into it and i you know i can't say that i would be adverse to trying more experiences like it if it was at the right price point Mm -hmm. can you imagine if universal did a similar harry potter experience or perhaps you got to stay at hogwarts and solve i don't know a mystery or or something oh my gosh can you imagine how wildly successful that would be yeah it's uh I've, it, I'm one of those people. I have always agreed that it would be so cool and amazing to do it. Uh, the main thing that would always stand in the way of that is that J.K. Rowling is just so protective yes, about how they true. use her her properties, and so if it's not, if it couldn't be done perfectly, she would never sign off on it. But if it if it could be done like like how the Galactic Star Cruiser was, or, or any other live theater thing, of course. It's it's a no-brainer to not try to do something <laughs> with it. I, I I mean, it's at least Universal took the step forward 
with having the interactive wands in the land so that way you could feel like you were a little bit more part of it and you were mm-hmm. you were able to to maybe have a little magic in you but to do it in a in a closed environment it would just be it would be next level yeah yeah well we will see what, what things may come yeah from this but i am looking forward to your and denny's um report on your experiences um, thank you. shortly so thank you for sharing that with us and i'm glad you survived <laughs> your barely. re-entry <laughs> barely i think i i will honestly say i slept maybe a total of seven hours over the two nights oh my uh, goodness and a lot of that was just you know i chose to stay up late and spend time in the sublight lounge trying the cocktails but mm-hmm. then you know it's breakfast is at seven and yeah you want to take an excursion to batu and get off get off the halcyon as quickly as possible uh so it was late nights and very early mornings <laughs> for me <laughs> and was- most of the day being spent off your feet except for meals and then time at the bar at the end of the night and such so I am. I've never done something that was this short of a time period and have been in such a state of exhaustion. Was Gaia selling autographed CDs in the lounge? Gaia was not selling autographed CDs, but (laughs) there was a a picture in the gift shop that you could purchase that was like a a little maybe five by seven uh, uh, print of like what looked like a Gaia concert poster that then Gaia would sign at one portion uh. during the the cruise. So you're not you're not too far off. But <laughs> I do believe if they have recorded um if they've recorded actual studio versions of these songs, people are going to be clamoring at at getting copies of them. I don't I don't think it's a thing they could just like release on apple music maybe they could i mean why not but um there was a massive amount of people who were obsessed with the songs and like memorized them after only hearing them once and Mm -hmm. i i don't i don't understand that my brain doesn't work like that but again i was also in a state of exhaustion so who knows maybe maybe was that easy to memorize was that actor from the Goldbergs who was in the first, um, the first little trailer? Was he there? You know, holding up his cigarette lighter. Yeah, his you know, his jaw Gaius was still music. dropped. Yes. <laughs> so they just they just left him there. They they just said just move around him. Don't don't worry about him. He's fine here. Just don't don't make eye contact. And we'll all be okay. <clears throat> Poor fellow. I, I have a feeling that is not going to be on his IMBD. <laughs> Well, anyway. luckily at this point, it's pretty much a race from history. So, <laughs> yes. Well, this week we are visiting Disneyland and exploring two favorite attractions of my boyhood, the pack mules and the Mike Fink keel boats. Now, Frontierland was quite different when the park opened on July 17th, 1955. Guests could travel the rivers of America on board the Mark Twain steamship and enjoy a lively show at the Golden Horseshoe Saloon whilst sipping a glass of ice-cold Pepsi-Cola. More adventuresome guests could explore Frontierland from the bouncy 
board wagons, the Conestoga stagecoaches and the Conestoga, well, I'm sh- I should say the Concord stagecoaches and the Conestoga wagons, or on the backs of pack mules under the leadership of a trail boss. The 1955 Disneyland guidebook provided the following description of Frontierland. Frontierland is where you'll actually live America's colorful and historic past. You'll enter Frontierland through the gates of an old log fort, past leather-stocking frontiersmen and Indians of many tribes gathered at the entrance. All the stores and buildings reminiscent of this period line the boardwalk of the town. At the blacksmith's shop, you'll watch ponies being shod. Next door, you'll see the harness maker at work, and across the street, the ever-famous general store. How about hopping a freight train? At the Frontierland Station, you can board a scaled-down version of an old-time Santa Fe and Disneyland iron horse and ride the freight car, comfortably provided with special seats, for an exciting ride around the perimeter of the park. You can board a buckboard, Conestoga wagon, or Concord stage to ride by the marshal's office, the jail, assay office, and other frontier enterprises, including an exciting trip through the painted desert. The Golden Horseshoe, the longest little bar with the tallest glassful of pop, and that faces a river dock in Frontierland. From there, you can board a 105-foot paddle-wheeler steamboat for a cruise on the rivers of America. So Frontierland was much, really felt like you were walking through the a Western experience. And, and remember, during this time, um, Western films were very popular in theaters and television uh, the three networks, because there were only three at the time, all of them were filled with uh, Western um, television shows. So uh, Frontierland was extremely popular. And at the time, it was the largest realm of all the, um, of all the areas of Disneyland. Now, there were three eras of the Disneyland pack mules. From July 1955 to February 1956, they were known as the Mule Pack and traveled the same area as the stagecoaches and Conestoga wagons. When the Rainbow Caverns mine train attraction was constructed, the frontier was altered and it was inspired by Walt Disney's first true life adventure film, The Living Desert. And the stagecoaches, Conestoga wagons, and pack mules remained, but their paths were changed to accommodate the new rail tracks for the mine train. And the scenery was also changed significantly. Now, the mule pack attraction became the Rainbow Ridge pack mules and traversed the trails from June 1956 until it closed in October 1959 to make way for another expansion to the frontier, with the Rainbow Caverns mine train becoming the mine train through nature's wonderland. So the frontier now held more amazing sights and scenes, including audio animatronic animals. Although the stagecoaches and Conestoga wagons were gone, the pack mules remained to carry guests for an up-close view of nature's wonderland. Now, it is well known that Walt's earliest plans for a park always had a steam train running around the perimeter of the park. But what you may not know is that Walt also included a burrow ride in his earliest plans, which is why the mule pack was ready to ride on Disneyland's opening day. 
In the early years of Disneyland, there were 30 mules backstage at the Circle Duty Ranch Stable, which they also called the Pony Farm. In the beginning, the path the mules traveled was an out-and-back loop of the frontier with a dog lake to the right about halfway through. And this path was within the same path of the slow-moving Conestoga wagons. The faster stagecoaches traveled a larger circular path around the perimeter of the frontier territory. Now, the pack mule path crossed the stagecoach and Conestoga wagon paths at the loading area. And cast members had to coordinate all this movement to ensure there were no collisions. To enter the pack mule loading area, guests walk past the miniature horse corral and around to the left of the Willard P. Bounds Blacksmith and U.S. Marshal Office. And Willard P. Bounds was a distant relative of Lillian Bounds. And if that name sounds familiar to you, Lillian Bounds was the wife of Walt Disney. In 1955, guests would step up onto the wooden platform loading zone and hand the cast members a C coupon, which is the highest value coupon at the time from their ticket book, and wait for a mule that was the right size. And there, there was also an area that was elevated that they would, guests would step up to so that they could easily, um, get onto their mule. Um, the mule train was made up of a trail boss on his mule, or he might ride a horse and seven or eight mules of differing sizes. And although there was no height restriction, there was a weight restriction. The youngest mules were two years old and typically ridden by the smallest guests. And these mules were directly behind the trail boss so that he could keep an eye on them. And the adult-sized mules were in the back of the mule train. So now operating procedures prevented cast members from asking female guests their weight, but they did have to straddle the saddles rather than riding side saddle. And cast members assisting guests with mounting their mules often had to explain to parents why they could not ride up front with their children because the children rode on the smaller mules in the front, but parents who weighed more had to ride the larger mules that were towards the back of the pack train. The trail bosses are trained animal handlers, and many were horse handlers, ex-horse racing jockeys, or real cowboys. And other Disneyland cast members could not fill in or be interchanged to work as a trail boss. Now, for guests whose legs could not reach the stirrups, um, loops of rawhide were attached to the saddle so their little feet could um, still, you know, reach in there and they could be secure. And, and I have evidence of all this because I sent Craig a photo of my mother and I on the pack mules yeah. when I was two years old. And I'm sitting actually with my mother on the pack mules because remember there was no height restriction and I have my little chubby legs and I think it's in a little rawhide stirrup there and my, and you, and you can see from that photo, they really, um, that we had stirrup, we had, we had, I don't know what you'd call them. We had stirrups all around us holding us in. 
around our waists and all of that. So yeah, um, just like um, you know, when you ride the carousel, carousel and yeah. you have to do the the belt around you. So you're uh, you're definitely secure in there. So you mm-hmm. you look safe. Oh yes, absolutely. And I I seem to be fascinated with the uh, mule, <laughs> and my um and my mother is is smiling for the camera. Yeah, so. uh, no, a, a glamorous shot of her, and then yeah, you're just. You're you're looking like you're driving a race car, even though you're riding around on a mule. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And my mother's straddling it, and of course, in a dress, mm-hmm. because that is, is what you wore. You got dressed up going to Disneyland. Even I'm in my little my little shorts and little little boy outfit. Yeah, like um, it's, it looks like the person that was kind of in the background of your photo. It looks like they're wearing like maybe uh, blue dress pants, but then I think they have a sleeveless shirt on. And I'm like, that's a rarity to see in terms of uh, in terms of Disneyland back in those days. So, it's, yeah, I, I guess it, it, back then you would have been the odd person out, but it's kind of how people know look at people who do get dressed up at the park saying like, mm-hmm. hmm, that's interesting that they wore that. So <laughs> it's, it's just flip-flopped. Yeah. Yeah. It is funny. So, but it's a fun photo. It's a, a nice memory to have. It is. So now, although there were 30 mules in the Disneyland stable, there were only 15 saddles. When the 15 mules who were on stage had completed their shift, they were taken to the corral where their blankets and saddles were removed and fitted onto 15 fresh mules. This would cause an extended wait for guests who were in the queue during the mules shift change. In 1955, the guest experience in riding the pack mules was not the scenery, but simply the unique experience of riding a mule. As the pack moved away from the loading platform, they cautiously crossed the path of the Conestoga wagons and stagecoaches and moved on out into the frontier territory. The pine trees behind the loading area and across the road along the ridge were soon replaced by scrub and grasslands, and the mules climbed the trail and crossed a wooden bridge over a dry riverbed. And riders may see a passing Conestoga wagon pulled by four horses as they go along. The mule pack then switched back around an earthen outcropping and and then take the long trail back to the stable. On the trail, there was a large split rail corral with a lone horse, three teepees, and a stretched deer skin on a rough wooden frame, indicating that there is a friendly Native American encampment nearby. And as the ride ended, riders would see another corral with a few more horses to their right. Now, as soon as Disneyland opened, Walt was thinking about how to improve and expand his park. One of his priorities was adding a mine train to Frontierland. So the mule pack closed on February 1st, 1956, to allow for the construction of the Rainbow Caverns mine train. And the mules returned as the Rainbow Ridge pack mules on June 26th, 1956, one week before the debut of the mine train. And even though the mules could be stubborn and cranky and would frequently bite guests, the attraction was a favorite of Walt's because he felt it added to the richness of the background of Frontierland and gave it authenticity. 
So three months before the pack meals reopened, a Disneyland executive shared a memo stating that the mule pack ride was the most popular ride of all the horse rides in Frontierland last summer. The memo went on to recommend that 45 more mules be added to the existing 30 mules at a cost of $50 each to increase the number of pack mule trains available on the new longer trail. The memo also recommended the purchase of saddles for all mules to reduce the attraction's downtime. Besides the new mine train, a new town was also built on the frontier, the Rainbow Ridge, where the train passengers embarked and disembarked. To the left was a new loading loop for the pack mules. The stagecoaches and Conestoga wagons now shared a single dirt road on the west side of the attraction area, away from the mine train tracks on the east side. The pack mules traveled through the center of the territory and crossed over the train tracks and the wagon road in two places. Walt Disney made sure the pack mule riders now had much more interesting scenery to look at when they gave up one of their new D coupons to ride the attraction. New earthen ridges and wider waterways were visible from the trail. Fascinating rock formations with balancing rocks and stone Native American dwellings could be seen. Bleached dinosaur bones lay bare to the elements, and in the distance, riders could see the rainbow desert with its multicolored mud pots. One of the most spectacular new rock formations was the Natural Arch Bridge, which was only slightly above the rivers of America. As the pack mule train plodded along the banks of the river, the trail climbed higher and higher over the ridge to the Natural Arch Bridge and the gateway to the Rainbow Desert. This provided some spectacular views to riders as their mules crossed the bridge with the mine train and Conestoga wagons crossing through the gateway beneath the arch. The trains were not allowed to blow their whistles or ring their bells when crossing beneath this arch so as to not startle the mules. The scenery in this new area was designed to be best viewed from the cars of the mine trains, so guests riding the mules felt as if they were getting a behind-the-scenes view of the vistas that included seeing the mine train chugging along and the Conestoga wagons bouncing past the vignettes. Walt continued to improve and expand his park, and that included Frontierland. In preparation for another major expansion, the Conestoga wagons and stagecoaches permanently closed in September 1959. And a month later, the pack mules and mine train were temporarily closed to expand Nature's Wonderland. Walt added 200 creatures to the wilderness from three of his true life adventure films, Bear Country, Beaver Valley, and The Living Desert, with the goal to educate, entertain, and amaze guests. Cascade Peak, a new mountain on an outcropping on the shoreline of the rivers of America, was a major part of the expansion. The mine trains through Nature's Wonderland and the pack mules were both e-ticket attractions. The pack mules were expensive to operate, and having it cost guests the highest coupon in their ticket book helped offset some of the cost.
Although I saw a quote from um, Van France, who you know um, originated uh, Disney University. He said those pack mules never made money. Um, <laughs> he said they were there because Walt liked them. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, that kind of makes sense to me uh, when you, you think about it. So that some things you're willing to take a loss on because it mm-hmm. adds to the atmosphere and the overall immersiveness of the environment exactly and and these are the days when walt and disneyland they were willing to do that and um you know i think those days are are gone they're behind us now but um i mean when we've talked about new orleans square and the shops that walt had in the original new orleans square they did not make money they were simply there because they added to the ambiance and storytelling of New Orleans Square. So. Now, the town of Rainbow Ridge had expanded down to the shores of the Rivers of America. The pack mule boarding area was now in front of the Golden Nuggets Saloon, the Horseshoe Cafe, the Pioneer Hotel, and the Nature's Wonderland Rainbow Bridge Outfitters for Pack Mules and Miners. Now that the town had grown so large, Willard P. Bounds gave up blacksmithing to become a full-time U.S. Marshal. As riders boarded their mules, they could hear sounds from inside the buildings gradually fade as they headed out of town and into the western wilderness. The path of the pack mules through nature's wonderland went along the ridge out of town and climbed towards Cascade Peak. The mine train now traveled on a new section of track around Cascade Peak towards the river and went into a tunnel under the mule path and came out on the river's side of the mountain. The train continued around the mountain, past and under waterfalls, between rocks and a river's edge before entering nature's wonderland. The mules did not travel along this scenic route, but still had some beautiful scenery as they headed into nature's wonderland. Rivers now flowed where Conestoga wagons and stagecoaches once traveled. The area where the large horse corral had been was now a lake filled with fish, beaver, and bear. All audio animatronic, of course. The path on which the stagecoach once passed beneath the natural arch bridge was now a stream that fed a pond for pronghorned antelope on the edge of the living desert. As riders traveled beyond Cascade Peak, the trail switched back on itself and descended to the edge of the rivers of America before turning north along the shore for a view of the living desert and the climb over the natural arch bridge. Before returning to the town of Rainbow Ridge, riders got a closer look at Beaver Valley. As they re-entered the town, riders saw the rustic dwelling of Trapper Snowshoe Miller and the Palace Dance Hall. And there was a story that as the, um, there was an issue at this point with the, the pack mules crossing the natural arch bridge because right near it there was an audio animatronic bobcat that would um as the train passed by it would sort of growl and roar at the passengers in the train the problem was if the pack mules were crossing it spooked the pack mules so they had to actually um 
disengage the sound. And I think they actually ended up removing the bobcat is a bobcat or a mountain lion. They had to actually remove it. But the problem was the mules remembered it. And the the trail bosses had a devil of a time getting the uh, mules to cross over the Natural Arch Bridge because they still thought they were going to see that animal there. That's <laughs> hilarious, but it makes complete sense. I mean... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that seems <laughs> like one of those things that it, it was cool in theory and uh, a neat idea, but uh, it definitely would the the fact that they were real animals was not taken into account. Yes. <laughs> now, the pack mules travel through Frontierland for close to 20 years at a time when calm, relaxing entertainment was enjoyed by both children and adults. However, the era of liability concerns was dawning. The days when a guest injured by a living beast could be compensated by a day pass to the park were ending. Live animal attractions were posing a greater risk as society turned to the courts for larger financial settlements. The pack mules took their last guests through Nature's Wonderland on October 1973. Guests would continue to explore Nature's Wonderland on board the mine train until January 1977, until the demand for more thrilling rides would introduce Big Thunder Mountain Railroad in September 1997. Some of the elements of the old mine train and pack mule areas of Nature's Wonderland, such as animals, cactus, and rockwork, were refurbished and reused for the new attraction. The mining town of Rainbow Ridge was recycled for the loading areas and where there is a homage to the pack mules in the form of an advertisement that reads, Pack Mules Bought, Sold, and Rented. Saguero, um, Cactus, the Bobcat on the Cactus, the Peccaries, and the Mountain Sheep found a new home in the Magic Kingdom's version of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. The Balancing Rock Canyon remained in Big Thunder Ranch. Cascade Peak remained as a stunning background along the rivers of America until August 1998. The Disneyland Pony Farm is now off-site, being moved out by Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Uh, a couple of other things. That one little scene where you um, walked that I talked about, and there was a one horse in a corral, and there was the the skin and and all that that indicated that there and some teepees that indicated that there was a Native American village nearby. That scene was recreated for a time along the rivers of America in the Native American scene, and oh, and of course and of course for a re and I don't know if people really realized that, but there was a horse there for a little while, and it was a, another homage to that. Um, you know, nature's, you know, nature's wonderland scene. And of course, now that's all been reworked and, and looks, you know, beautiful. You know, when the, when the train had to be eroded due to um, Galaxy's Edge. Also, when you walk along that big thunder trail, you can see the, um, you can see a tunnel for the mine train there. And that is the actual mine train tunnel. Um, for the mind changing nature's wonderland and that pond that's there that people like to gaze into because you see the occasional, you know, there's turtles in there and stuff that have somehow found their way in there. Um, that was Beaver Valley. 
So there's still a remnant of um, Mind Chase and Nature's Wonderland. And for a while, the you could see the uh, along um, Rivers of America, they had, remember, they, you might remember, Craig, when Cascade Peak especially was still there, they had a, um, it looked like there was a landslide and there was a, a sort of a crashed mine train there. Um, that, that was the trail. That was part of the, the actual mine oh. train track that they traveled around that to enter nature's wonderland. Oh, wow. So anyway, so there were a lot of, there are a lot of remnants yeah. of the old nature's wonderland there. Actually, and it's nice to know I there's, realized. yeah. And it's nice to know there's some over big thunder railroad at the magic kingdom. Now, when the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World opened, there were no plans to include Pirates of the Caribbean because they thought pirates would be too familiar to Florida residents. Florida residents, and we've talked about this in, in previous episodes. Imagineers thought cowboys and Indians would hold more fascination and planned the Western River Expedition attraction to be built around and within Thunder Mesa Mountain in Frontierland, and it would have been one of the largest and most complex attractions at the time. The Western River Expedition was to be a boat ride, taking guests on a lively tour through the western expansion of the United States, and this was, you know, um, created by Mark Davis. This attraction would share Thunder Mesa Mountain with a runaway mine train themed roller coaster, hiking trails, a Pueblo Native American village, and yes, a pack mule ride. But due to the projected high cost of the Thunder Mesa and guest complaints about there being no Pirates of the Caribbean attraction, this project was cancelled and Magic Kingdom guests were prevented from experiencing the thrill of riding a pack mule through the Frontierland wilderness. I wonder how the pack mules would have handled the heat and humidity, but... Yeah, I don't... I mean, (laughs) well, uh, there's a lot of farm animals in Florida, so I Mm. think think they ultimately could take it, but I... Uh, that that's just a guess. I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on pack mules. Yeah, I, I yeah. know absolutely nothing. I mean, I know they're good with like dry heat, but humidity that's it's a different beast. Yeah, yeah, that is. But I, I assume they'd acclimate. Uh, yeah, why not? We all do. It's uh, <laughs> yes. evolution. Life finds a way. Now, now that we've traveled the wilderness of Frontierland by land, let's explore it by water. The Davy Crockett television series and Disneyland were two of Walt's biggest successes, and the Mike Fink keelboat attraction linked these two together for over 40 years. The Mike Fink keelboat attraction was based on two episodes of the Davy Crockett series, which aired on the Disneyland TV show in 1955. Davy Crockett's keelboat race aired on November 16, 1955, and Davy Crockett and the River Pirates on December 14, 1955. The attraction was named after Mike Fink, the king of the river, who lost the keelboat race. The attraction opened on December 25, 1955. The two 38-foot boats, the Gullywumper and the Bertha May, were the actual boats that had been used in making the television shows that had aired days earlier. 
Walt brought them to the park mainly for show. They made the rivers of America more alive and gave guests another way to experience the river environment. When the attraction opened, just the gully wumper took guests around Tom Sawyer Island until May 1956, when the Bertha May was ready to set sail. Both keelboats were brought to Disneyland in August 1955, when the location filming for the episodes was completed. It's most likely that the Bertha May, which had two doors in its superstructure, was repurposed as the gully wumper and first used for the attraction. The other boat, the original gully wumper with its single hatch, had to be reworked before it could set sail on the rivers of America. After it was modified with two additional side doors, fitted it with turned banisters and gingerbread trim, it became Disneyland's Bertha May. The original keel boats were constructed entirely out of pine, cypress, redwood, and Douglas fir. And after 10 years of service, they were accurately replaced by new boats constructed at the Disneyland staff shop. The shop crew dismantled the gully wumper and framed it in external bracing. And a plaster mold was made of the hull, steel, reinforced beams, and steel hull ribs were set in place. And seven layers of fiberglass covered the hull. The two keelboat replacements were about five times as strong and half the weight of the originals. The decks and superstructures were built at the Disneyland Mill using dry rot resistant Douglas fir. The new keelboats were fitted with sound systems, three speakers, and a 24 volt battery electrical system. The boats were powered by a 70 horse four cylinder Westerbeek marine engine fueled by natural gas. Each boat cost $27,500 to construct. Two cast members operated the keelboats, a dock host and a boat driver. They were trained to be casual but alert and to remain in character as keelboaters. As guests embarked and disembarked, the boat driver or riverman kept his left foot on the dock and his right foot on the gunwale opposite the control console. Each watercraft on the rivers of America had its own unique route, timetable, and capacity. And this required cooperation amongst every boat operator on the river. There was a river right-of-way for watercraft, with the Mark Twain and Columbia first and the keelboats last. This was because the Mark Twain and Columbia sail at a set speed and cannot make up time if they are delayed. The guest-powered canoes are also limited in speed. Since the keelboat drivers had the most control over their boats, they were expected to deal with any situation along the river that involved other watercraft. The keelboats were allowed to cast off from their dock near Fowler's Harbor only if no canoe had started out from their dock, no raft had begun its journey between the shore and Tom Sawyer Island, and no big boat was close. So a series of hand signals was created to facilitate communication between all the boat operators. The keelboats offered guests a unique perspective of the rivers of America. The Mark Twain and Columbia provide guests with a high and distant perspective. The constant paddling by the guests to maintain the forward motion of the canoes keeps everyone too busy to gaze at the passing scenery, 
Only the keelboats took guests on varied course, moving sideways across the river to visit both banks, since they were not on guide rails. Both boats offered two-level seating, with guests on the upper level having a panoramic view of Frontierland and the rivers of America, with guests on the lower level having the same but shaded view. Twelve guests rode inside the lower level, and eighteen on the upper level or roof, and two more on the bow seat. Now, that was the coveted seat. That was the seat Carol and I always rode on until the children came along. Then we sat on top. So often when one of the larger ships approached, the keelboats would move into a cove to enjoy a closer look at the scenery. The riverman piloting the keelboat shared a humorous spiel with guests and engaged in a competitive banter with the passing canoes. And I really think that the spiel of the keelboaters was much funnier than the jungle cruise skippers so um they were hilarious and they were always arguing with the um the the guys on the canoes yeah. so. you know that it makes sense to me though i'm not saying this as a criticism uh to jungle cruise skippers by any means but uh you know when i i feel like the jungle cruise skippers aren't always set in a place to be comedians they're more set up to tell jokes and Mm -hmm. there's there's other ways to have more uh natural comedy develop and so uh, yeah i i could totally totally see why you would say that because you know skippers you have to have a committed skipper in order to really sell it and that's just not always the case yeah yeah, and, and now the rivermen piloted the keelboat from the rear, and they received extra pay. So the keelboats are seasonal attractions operating on weekends, holidays, and the summer season. The keelboats were absent from the Rivers of America for almost two years, from 1994 to 1996. Whilst no official reason was given for the closure, the boat's permanent closure would be less than a year later. On May 17, 1997, the Gully Wumper was carrying 49 passengers, even though the boat's capacity was 32 to 38, depending upon the size of the guests, with most of the extra passengers at the time were sitting on the upper level. As a result, the boat became unstable and began rocking back and forth until it tipped over, dumping the passengers into the rivers of America, causing some minor injuries to guests. The boats were removed for inspection, but never returned to the river. Disney Auctions put up the Bertha May for auction in December 2001. It was purchased by collector Richard Kraft for $15,000 and was later featured in the scene from Kraft's documentary, Finding Craftland. In 2003, the Gollywumper was restored to its 1955 television appearance and docked near Tom Sawyer Island until it sank due to water damage. It was replaced in 2010 with a Gollywumper replica near the former burning log cabin to indicate that Mike Fink now lived in the rebuilt cabin, although some of the sources that I read claim it is the original restored Gollywumper 
Other sources report that it's a keelboat from the Magic Kingdom attraction. So I don't know. And I do know that around this time, well, maybe a little earlier, I was backstage at Disneyland for a reason. And I saw an old, I saw an old keelboat up on braces backstage. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I don't know. And it looked like it, it was in sad shape. So I don't know what keelboat that was and what they were doing with it. But, uh, but it was back there. So very interesting. Yeah. Now the keel boats at the Magic Kingdom were an opening day attraction and they closed permanently on April 29th, 2001. And the keel boat landing is now used as an overflow queue for the haunted mansion. The River Road keel boats opened at Disneyland Paris on opening day, April 12th, 1992. Those boats are named Coyote and Raccoon. They carry 40 guests each for a tour of the rivers of the Far West by Rogue Pirates. The attraction closed in 2000, but returned to service as a seasonal attraction in 2007. And in 2010, the attraction closed again and was removed from the park guides and maps. And I think its loading area has a sign up that says beware of bears or something like that. So, uh, anyway, so did you ride the keelboats at the Magic Kingdom, Craig? Yeah, but I was very, very young. Yeah. So, and the, my, my complaint about, and I've said this before, about the Rivers of America, the Magic Kingdom, is there's nothing really interesting to look at along Yeah, I, I, I'd there. agree with that. Yeah. You know, they need to set up scenes like they have at Disneyland, because they certainly have the room for it. So I, I don't know why they don't. And then they could have the recording on the Liberty Bell and and all that, you know, pointing out the scenes and stuff like that, like they do on the Mark Twain. Yeah. And, I'm assuming um, it's just general interest, though. People maybe not as... don't care as much. Yeah, but so if they put in it? some really interesting scenery... With some audio animatronics, I think it would generate interest. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I just, I just, I think that they're like, you know what? Why bother? But maybe that's just wrong <laughs> me to believe yeah. that way. I mean, in terms of how they feel, I don't know how anyone feels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, both the pack mules and keelboats gave guests a unique view of Frontierland in its early years and showed how much Walt Disney wanted to provide a pioneer experience in Frontierland. And although Frontierland now provides guests with more thrilling experiences of the West, and I enjoy those experiences, it's a shame that there is no longer room for simpler interactive attractions like the keelboats or experiences unique to urban children like the pack mules. And, you know, I just remember when I was little, just the, it seemed like Frontierland never ended, you know, at Disneyland. It, it just seemed to go on forever because it's just, there was this frontier in this expanse that went all the way out to the berm. Mm -hmm. And um, you really felt like you were in the Old West. They really carried it off well. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so I, I miss that, that we don't have that anymore. But... You know, we, we, we have other 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 interesting things to enjoy there. And now it's time for this week in Disney history. 
right, Craig. Now it is your turn. So to share a, a nugget of history from this week in Disney yes. history. It is my turn, and I have a fun one picked out for us. Technically, I'm I'm going to be uh, a, I'm going to have a little fun with this one because the date that I'm choosing to talk about uh, this week isn't one that we'll get to experience this year uh, because I'm talking about Leap Day, and mm-hmm. I know we've probably talked about it before, and I've talked about it ad nauseum in a lot of places, but uh, one of my favorite things to happen on Leap Day, February 29th, was in 2012 when they did the One More Day at Disney promotion and had it open for 24 hours starting at 6 a.m. through 6 a.m. the next day on March 1st. And I, I, I loved the 24 hour days and I fondly remember being at this one. You know, I, I was, I think I attended every single 24 hour day that they had to, two in Walt Disney World and then one in Disneyland and it it's just it is so cool being in the parks especially late i i will say that because you know it's you get there at 6am when it starts yeah there's there's a lot of fanfare because you're there in the beginning but you know by the time 7 o'clock rolls around You know, isn't Magic Kingdom open? Or was, pre-pandemic at least, it was opening at 7 a.m. that guests could start going in. So, not really that unique. But getting to be in the parks after 2 o'clock, you know, that's something that that you never got. Like, because even back in the day when they would have three-hour extra magic hours, I feel like those would always end at 2 a.m. So... There's that strange time period kind of around like four through six where the parks are just it's it's almost eerie even when they're filled with people just because of the time of night. So that's that was my favorite thing doing uh, with the Magic Kingdom 24 hour days that I did. Um, I I would go into those, you know, later on in the day, usually I think it was around like. 10 or 11 at night and then spend the entire night there. But the one I did for Disneyland when that was the launch of the 50th, not 50th anniversary, 60th anniversary uh, events that I was there with, with you on, that was the, the nightmare of getting there for the 6am start. Oh my gosh. Not being able, I think I I called it quits that night around like 11, 12, one o'clock, something like that. I think it was when I found out that, DCA was about to do their performance of the World of Color show, but the park closed to capacity because everyone left to go over there to see it. And that's when I just said, nope, I don't. I'm, I'm done. I'm calling it a night. I think I stayed at Disneyland. I and then there were all, And there were all of these things. People were upset because they were still lining up to try to get in at Disneyland. And they weren't letting them in, even though so many people had left Disneyland. And there was that whole controversy. Yeah. You know. Didn't you go to see World of Color, though, at like 3 a.m. or something like that? I think I did. I think it was nuts. I mean, I was so tired. I dozed off watching the swing dancing over at Carnation Plaza for a little while. And, um, you know, so I sort of got a breather. But yeah, it was crazy. Just crazy. So, 
yeah, I I miss those days. I don't think you know, unless management completely changes, I don't think these twenty four hour days will ever return. But uh, they they were all a ton of fun, including the the one that happened on leap day. It was it was a cool way. We had an extra day to the calendar, so why not have a full extra day mm-hmm. at Disney? Just it, it was so cool. Yeah, it was. I I, I think I'm too old for that now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't absolutely. think I could stay awake. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel so, that way. Yeah. Well, mine takes place on February 27th, 1941. And this is when what has now become the Disney theme song, When You Wish Upon a Star, written by Lee Harline and Ned Washington from Walt Disney's Pinocchio, won the Oscar for Best Song at the uh, 13th Academy Awards. And Lee Harline, Paul J. Smith, and Ned Washington also took home the Oscar for Best uh, Music original score for their work on Pinocchio. And of course, uh, you know, can you imagine anything Disney that does not have When You Wish Upon a Star incorporated into it in some way, from opening of the films to nighttime spectaculars, parades, uh, you name it, this is in it. Yeah, I mean... It's a song yeah. that has transcended time. I mean, it's a, it's a true classic in mm-hmm. in every form of the word. So I, it's it, it's iconic, truly is iconic. Absolutely, and it's totally identified with the Disney Company. I have a feeling a lot of people forget that Jiminy Cricket ever sang this in Pinocchio. Because it, like you said, is just so identified uh, with you know just everything Disney. So, oh yeah, no, I I I, I know that for a fact because we had an off the rails episode where we were talking about Fantasyland, and uh, <laughs> I I think we were talking about the carousel. And I was complaining about how I always hear Beauty and the Beast, uh, you know, be our guest on uh-huh. on our soundtrack for the Carousel. And I'm like, I just want to hear Cinderella songs. And Rhino spoke up and was like, Yeah, like, uh, like when you wish upon a star. It's like that's that's the perfect example of this. It's I think you know, there's so many of us out there who could be like, How could you ever forget? where that song came from and that, it, you know, it was Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket, but, uh, you know, not, not everyone watches it and they just know the song in, in general now. So, uh, I, I yeah, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people probably don't even connect it to Jiminy Cricket anymore. Maybe, maybe they did back in the day of wishes a little bit more since That's he true. was the narrator, but those days are long gone. <laughs> Yeah, oh gosh, don't get people started. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not, I'm backing off from here. (laughs) Well, there was, there was quite a bit of Disney news coming out when, as you were off in a galaxy far, far away. So, uh, but I mean, a few things that caught my attention. Of course, everybody around my neighborhood asked if, you know, I'm going to be packing up and moving to Contino, you know, story living by Disney. This, um, this yeah, in, uh, planned Palm community. Springs. Yes, and no, I am not moving anywhere near there. I, if I move anywhere, it's going to be a place that has water. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
I, I am tired of water rationing. Uh, yeah, no, this one's this one's a little wild to me. I mean, I get it that like uh, I forget who shared it on social media, but someone sent out a link to like the developer that's building it, and I mean they they specialize in highly expensive communities in basically the the southwestern region of (laughs) the united states and then i think hawaii too if that is the company who's going to be in charge of the the construction and such and it just seems like that's their thing that let's let's build all these places in uh some unsustainable locations (laughs) so uh, i can i completely understand why you don't want to live there and i just you know i don't Palm Springs, I've driven through it. I've never actually visited. It's on my list of places that I want to visit one day, but uh, I just, I don't understand the concept of living in a Disney community. I don't understand the concept back in the day when people wanted to live in celebration. I don't understand Golden Oak, and I don't understand this one. I understand them all, and, and I do find it intriguing, and I'm not opposed to it. It's just... um the location of this place, and I'm sure the cost will be exorbitant. Mm-hmm. And but you know, if it were, if they had something like this, and it was close, sort of to, I don't know, the Magic Kingdom or something, or or if it was close to uh, where like my son and his wife live, I'd consider it. You know, but it, it you know, I'd consider it for a brief moment in time. I, I'd I would investigate it. Maybe that's the word I would use. Okay. But I like I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by it. But I already know a couple of people that they are very seriously want to find out more about this. Well, so, good for them. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, you know, the Main Street Electrical Parade. They uh, they announced that they um, are replacing the Salute to America float. Well, they're not replacing. They're basically redressing it. It's the same float. They say a brand new 118 foot float. It's the same float. It's just that they're redressing it so that there'll be the segments are going to um, be for different films, and and then it's supposed to be the the character is supposed to be in the art style of Mary Blair and all that. So it sounds intriguing and all that, but. Um, I think it's this float is going to become like that that mirrored princess float that you have at, at the Magic Kingdom that has been, you know, redressed and reused so many times. I think that's what this grand finale float is going to be for the Main Street Electrical Parade. Yeah, I, I will say I will miss the American theme to it. I, I absolutely will miss that. Yeah, I'm I'm upset that. You know, it is a, a redressing in that way because once it's redressed, it's not it's not coming back. Um, no, and there and- was a very controversial article in the Los Angeles Times about, well, this is outdated patriotism, and you know, and and it got very political, and yeah, some people, I- and you know, I thought no, you know, Walt was um, patriotic. And there's nothing wrong. And I know we're in an era where we we're tend to focus on what's negative about our country, and we're we're not we're forgetting what's positive about it. 
And, um, you know, so, so that, that just, you know, and they said, well, you know, there's a flag retreat ceremony and there's great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And that's true. But, um, I don't think patriotism is outdated. No. And I don't necessarily think people thought of that. Like I kind of, I always looked at it and this was wrong, the wrong way to look at it, but it's how I interpreted it is that it was kind of like you had this great celebration of Disney and lights and sound. And then it culminated in like what could be described as the 4th of July moment. Exactly. I always thought of it finale with fireworks. That's what I thought of it as it was basically the 4th of July. And it, you know, so, um, so, you know, it'll be interesting. I'm I'm glad that they're, they're not just rolling out the same old parade because like, you know, we've spoken before some of the fleet, some of the floats are gone. Mm -hmm. And so this is not like, you know, I'm hoping maybe they'll, bring back a couple like the the snow white float that's been gone for a while and the pinocchio float that's been gone for a while and um it'd be nice if they brought those back as well yeah i mean the nice part is now we can't hear people complain about oh it's just the same parade we're tired of it retire this thing Mm -hmm. forever at least they they're doing something different i agree and i'm glad that they're bringing in you know some of the more recent characters and um, so, you know, that's fun. It'll be interesting to see how they're going to work in the music. Um, because having so many different films yeah. in so close to each other, because you know how they worked in the themes, theme songs for each film into the Baroque hoedown. These are going to be boom, 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 right on top of each other. So it's going to be interesting to see how they um, weave that in and out. Yeah, I didn't really think about that, but you're right. Yeah. So, and um, since we're talking about films, seeing Red, the Pixar film that's going on to Disney Plus, um, it's apparently some initial reviews are out. I guess it's been previewed for the media, and the initial reviews have been pretty positive. I it uh, that's what I expected. I mean, mm-hmm. it's. I watched the trailer for it and I think it obviously looks whimsical, but I think just based on what that looks like, it just looks delightful. So I I expect that to, to be positive. It'll just be, can it find an audience on Disney plus to elevate it further? I think, I think it's probably going to, unfortunately, because it's launching on there, I think it's going to get lost like Luca did and, and, you know, not Onward, because Onward technically did have its theatrical release, but... Yeah, it was yeah. brief, but it had yeah, it. Yeah, it was very But brief. Soul, Soul didn't get its run, and I think that would have done pretty well in the theaters. I, yeah. Oh, no, I think, I, I think Onward, you know, it, it I, I think Onward kind of, it got its recognition that it needed to get, it just opened it a bad time, but I I think it still did fine on its own, but I think soul would have done better with a theatrical performance. Mm -hmm. I think more people would be talking about Luca if it was on theaters. And I I agree with this because um, with seeing red, I think that would follow the same line that it, it it might draw more people to Disney plus because that's how they have to watch it. And it might be better for families with kids, but uh, in terms of 
I guess for better or for worse, adults who are talking about it and and such, the conversations aren't happening as much. But then Encanto is the polar opposite that no one talked about it in theaters, but then started talking about it on Disney Plus. So maybe maybe there's just no rhyme or reason for it. But I will always say Pixar movies deserve to be seen in theatrical settings. I agree. I absolutely agree with you. The the trailer, now that's funny, the trailers did nothing for me. But I thought, okay, but that's happened to me before, where I haven't been intrigued by a trailer, and then I see the film, and I really like it. So uh, that's what I'm anticipating is going to happen with seeing Red. Hopefully. When I watch it, I am going to think, okay, this this is terrific. So... It has got some people have criticized it for the style of animation, and so I'm not sure what that's about. And I, um, I think they said I've the alluded, same about Luca too. Yeah, I, I think I alluded to this in one of our previous episodes, but I, the Pixar style with Luca and then with this, I feel like it has a slight Studio Ghibli look to it. Very, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a. Uh, a Disney take on more Japanese animation. And I don't, I don't know if that's a, while worldwide, there are so many people who appreciate it, including me. I don't know if uh, generally there's people who, who care for that, like that grew up on, you know, Disney fairy tale stories like Snow White and, and Cinderella. More realistic. Exactly that. And then, you know, get to the 90s and Renaissance, and then they reestablished another style. And now the current style of Disney characters looks like (laughs) what Pixar used to look like. I feel like it's just, you know, Pixar wants to keep moving forward with Mm -hmm. how they do their animation, something they've always done, whether it's like something like the good dinosaur saying, you know what, characters, they are what they are, but this is a way for us to really make our background scenes next level and photorealistic. And, you know, then, then bringing that in with something like finding Dory, which is like, Hey, you thought finding Nemo looked good. This is even more realistic, but then also our beautifully designed characters are a part of it too. And, you know, it's, it's, it picks our, they strive to try to one up themselves. And so I, I feel like, yeah, changing changing their character design and changing the animation. It's just the natural progress that the company has to take. They can't they can't make every movie look the same the entire uh, point of their career. And while we look at it as this doesn't feel right because it's not what we know in another 20 years from now, that, that's not going to matter because they're going to move on to the next style. And we're going to be saying, oh, that doesn't feel familiar. I what? Let's go mm-hmm. back to the days of Luca and, and seeing Red. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And I think Pixar just has a reputation for being um, uh, experimental and trying new things, which is what Walt wanted. You know, Walt really always pushed his animators, and they and he he saw television and the shorts as a way they could really try new styles of animation and all that, and. Um, you know, but yeah, because Disney does have that style, and some animators really can't work with it. But then, you know, and and have left as a result of it and gone to other studios. But um, but yeah, I I like that Pixar 
tries new styles and, you know, keeps experimenting and things like that. So I'm looking forward to seeing this. Well, I use several references for this episode, some books and magazines I used. The um, book, The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway. The E-Ticket Magazine number 43 that covered the pack mules and E-Ticket Magazine number 33 that talked about the keelboats. Um, and the unofficial Disneyland 1955 Companion by Jim Corcus and Secret Stories of Extinct Disneyland Memories of the Original Parks by Jim Corcus and an article on a website that I took a look at was by the Duchess of Disneyland on Mike Fink Killboats. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the shows that I'm on on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network, like, uh, you know, the Disney World Edition Podcast, Universal Show, all, all that good stuff. You can mm-hmm. find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Teleclaster, or you can email me, Craig, at WDWinfo.com. But what about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, MichaelBowling-Connecting with Walt. Instagram, MichaelBowlingTheDiz. And you can connect with both me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. Share some stories. If you remember the packed meals and the keelboats, or you have photos of yourself on them, share some stories. Or if you were a, a river man on a keelboat, we'd love to hear your stories about that. Or a trail boss. And did you get bit by a pack mule? Um, if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.